The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. As we turn to Daniel, in Jesus' Bible, we find ourselves going back into the story part. So the story began in the book of Genesis, and it ran all the way to the end of 2 Kings. God begins with global kingdom purposes. Humanity rebels. God sets apart one family and raises them up and says, through you, my global kingdom purposes will be fulfilled. Now before that family was commissioned, Abraham and his offspring... We were at Babel. It's the exact same word as we have translated Babylon later. I'm not certain why our translators consistently do that. But it's the Tower of Babylon. And then God spreads out people all over the earth and sets apart Abraham and his family. They rise up. God sets them apart distinctively at Mount Sinai through the Exodus, and they end up in the land. A kingdom is built, the kingdom is divided, the kingdom falls, and at the end of the book of Kings, Israel is now separated from their homeland in Babylon. They've returned to the place of judgment. So we have K as kickoff and rebellion at creation, fall, flood. I as instrument of blessing for the patriarchs. N is nation redeemed and commissioned. Exodus, Sinai, wilderness. All that happens in the law. Jesus' Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So in the law, the old covenant is established, and it's all narrative. The narrative continues. Here we have government in the land, conquest and kingdoms. We get Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. And right here, the story ends with Nebuchadnezzar entering in as king of Babylon, and through his general, overcoming Jerusalem. Then we switch into commentary, and the commentary books initially in the latter prophets reflect on why Israel's history went the way it did. And these were the preachers that were proclaiming, come back, come back, declaring judgment, and then ultimately also declaring hope through judgment. Jeremiah is the first in this arrangement of the books. And then after we get, hear the voices of the latter prophets, there's a major transition that happens in the writings. We move from dark days to a focus on the remnant who were hoping in the kingdom. Ruth, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Lamentations, all of these are the voices of the remnant hoping in the kingdom. And the commentary ended with lamentations. Lamentations, most likely written by Jeremiah, so that all the commentary books are framed by Jeremiah books. But Lamentations is about the exile. And so it brings us back 
it brings us back to where we left off in Kings and sets us up to transition back to the story that's picked up in Daniel. In Lamentations, a bridge is built to the exile. Lamentations 1.1, this is where we were last week. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow Jerusalem has become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Lamentations gets us feeling the depth of separation from God's saving presence. How long, O Lord, will You return? It not only bridges us into the context of exile, it bridges us out of darkness into kingdom hope. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Here's the very last verses of Lamentations that end the commentary section and end it with a giant question mark that is then answered, picked up in the narrative books, beginning with Daniel. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Your kingdom is over all things. But will you let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Will you, God, will you let us taste it? Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you remain exceedingly angry with us. You reign over all, but will you let us experience your reign? Will you intrude into our pain and overcome it? And we turn and we open in Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. At the very time... When Jeremiah is in Jerusalem calling out, God, are you still on the throne? Up in Babylon, he's at work. Notice a few things. Number one, God was in charge of the exile. 
Do you see that in verse 2? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Absolute sovereign over all things. Nebuchadnezzar believes that he is overcoming the kingdoms of man. And this text says right away, it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. This was not outside of God's purposes. Indeed, he was building his kingdom. A kingdom that would be noted by suffering, by salvation that would only come through suffering. There were three exiles, 605, 597, and 586. The destruction of Jerusalem that Lamentations is lamenting over was 586, but it had been compiling. In 605, Daniel and his three friends had been hiked off out of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was not destroyed. Then in 597, Nebuchadnezzar shows up again, and this time Ezekiel and other noblemen of the land are taken up to Babylon. Ezekiel the prophet, sorry, the priest, only in Babylon becomes Ezekiel the prophet, right during the time that Daniel is ultimately in power. And then in 586, Jerusalem finally falls, the temple is destroyed, and only the poorest of the poor are left in the land. Notice verse 1-3, the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people, specifically the royal family. Why mention that? Why does it set apart those who were the offspring of the kingdom? Because most of them do get wiped out, but why mention it here? Pardon? They survived. We're looking for kingdom hope. We're awaiting the day when the son would rise from that noble family, the line of David. And God tells us they're not all dead. There's hope here. The nobles are there. And among them, specifically four guys from the tribe of Judah, that's the tribe of the lion, that's the tribe from which The scepter would not depart from which the king would come. That's the tribe that David, the Davidic promises were made to. The royal family is preserved. And then we get four heroes. And their names ring. We know three of them mostly by their Babylonian names. But their Hebrew names are where we find hope. So here's the lamenter crying out, God, will you, you who reign over all, not doubting his reign, as deep as the suffering, the lamenter is not doubting God's reign over all. You reign. But will you let that reign be seen? Will you let us taste it? May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he's crying out for. And now, this is what we get. Four heroes of this book rise up. Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, who is like God? And then my son Ezra's name, the shortened form is Ezra, Azariah, Yahweh has helped. And in the testimony of these four lives, there is a big God worth following whose character is being displayed in their very names. Here in chapter 1, 
These four guys are set apart. Verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food. The same happens with his brothers. And so a test is created. You let us eat vegetables and feed all the unclean pork to all the rest, and we'll see after the time frame who's in better health. And indeed, Daniel and his three friends were in better health. They rise up, and then we hear this. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were ten times, ten times more equipped than any of the others. Is God still, does He still care for us? Oh yes, He cares for you. In fact, in the midst of exile, He is raising up some of your compatriots, lamenter, who will stand as lights in the darkness and be instrumental in bringing about restoration, who will proclaim the greatness of God, who will confront the new king over all, like Moses did, like Joseph did in Egypt. Yes. That's exactly right. Right. So in the book of Ezekiel earlier had set out that exact note. In the midst of Ezekiel's exile in 597, remember everything goes backwards before Jesus. In 597, Ezekiel is exiled, then he's called as a prophet around 593. And then in 586, Jerusalem falls, and all the book of Ezekiel is therefore given to a people up in Babylon, the same place where Daniel is. The words of Ezekiel are given to a people who are apparently questioning, why are we here? Has God been unfaithful? And the point is, no, God hasn't been unfaithful, you've been unfaithful. That all of Daniel's audience around him, there were probably many Jews who were called upon like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to bow down to the idol. And many of them probably did, but not these three. These are the three. They are the hope, but they were a remnant few in the midst of a very dark, dark time. So as we look at the book, we've already covered chapter 1, preservation of a remnant. There's two different parts to this book. There's the story part, and then there's the vision part. And it's often called apocalyptic because it's focused on the end and it uses images that are more like Lord of the Rings than Anne of Green Gables. And, but it's, display, it's displaying things that are to happen in space and time in a world more like Anne of Green Gables. But it's, de- it's displaying how God is operating. He's on the throne and He's going to enter into... He is in the midst of a battle that will 
result in the ruin of all those who are against him, and he will show himself ultimately as king. And in this book, it is king through his royal servant, the Messiah. And he's called that in chapter 9. He is the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah. So the beginning of the book, in the stories, the stress is God's in charge. You might feel, lamenter, that in the present, God is distant. No, God is very present, and He's on the throne. He's in charge of everything that's going on. He's the one who raises up kings. He's the one who puts them down. And God gave Jehoiakim into Babylon's hands. It didn't happen any other way. Babylon is working and ruling only because the Most High, that's what he's called throughout this book, the Most High God of Heaven. In the mouth of the pagans, that's what they term him. The Most High God of Heaven is, in, is indeed on the throne. And this is a book, the first six chapters are designed to help those living in space and time in Babylon, all the other rulers in the political sphere, let them realize, have their eyes open to the fact that God, Yahweh, is in charge in the present. And then the book shifts and we get vision after vision after vision that unpacks pictures of the future. How kingdoms will rise and fall. Kingdoms will rise and fall. Each kingdom overseen by a king. And ultimately, all of them will be toppled as God makes His kingdom, ultimately through His Messiah. So, a whole series of stories. Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream. The fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar's, he goes crazy and then he's restored. The handwriting on the wall. Daniel in the lion's den. In each one of these stories, there's going to be a big picture of God shown that He is in charge, that He's on the throne. So for a people that are feeling desperate, who are feeling like they're in suffering, who are experiencing darkness, this is a book to gain deep hope. The God of the Exodus is the God of the second Exodus. And they're in exile, just like they were in Babylon and he, in, in, in Egypt, and He will bring them through. Four beasts a vision of a ram and a goat, 70 weeks of years, the final vision. Now that we're going to see that there's a pattern. Even though in chapter 2 we're in the midst of a story, what Nebuchadnezzar gets is a dream. It's a dream of a statue with four parts. We're going to walk through that momentarily and see that those four parts represent four kingdoms. And then we get four beasts. And what chapter 7 in that vision is talking about, it parallels exactly what he was talking about in chapter 2. So there's progressive revelation, and we actually gain greater clarity about the message of all the visions as we walk through all of them together. So let's see how far we can get. Chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He has a dream, and he puts his magicians, his wise men, up to a test. What does he say to them? It's a test unlike anywhere we read in our scriptures. When we're back in the story of Josh, Joseph, Pharaoh actually tells him the dream, right? And then Joseph just has to interpret it. But this king says, if you're really a wise guy, what? What do they have to do? Tell him the dream and then the interpretation. And what do these guys say? There's no one on earth 
Who could do that? We read these words. As news comes that Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill all the wise men in the land. Blessed be the name of the God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. This is Daniel in his prayer time. He is the one who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells in him. So we look at verse 28. Daniel is brought. He says, I will give this king both his dream and the interpretation. So the king brings him up, verse 27, rather. He approaches the king, and he says this, King, sorry, I'm not able to make known to you what you want in my own power. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But, but, verse 28, there is a God, a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So he's taken the focus off of himself. He's merely an instrument. He's not proud. He's humble before the king overall. And he is now going to unpack this vision. You saw, O king, let me tell you what you saw. You saw, verse 31, a great image. The image, mighty and exceedingly bright, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human. Then by whom? It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. There's four parts ahead of gold, a chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of clay, and iron mixed, and then a stone. And the stone grows, destroys the statue, and then grows into a massive mountain. And the king says, yes, that's exactly what I saw. What does it mean? You, O king, are the head of gold. That's what we see. So, the head of gold is representative of two things, both representative of Nebuchadnezzar as king and of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Look at verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given... Wherever they dwell, the children of man, all people, all over the world, all beasts of the field, all the birds of the heavens, you rule over them. You are the head of gold. And then he says, another kingdom. See that? So the rest of the body parts are going to be kingdoms. 
But what that suggests to me is that the head of gold is also a kingdom. It's Babylon that has a king. And then we come all the way down, verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. This is the stone that, grows, that destroys all the other kingdoms and grows into a mountain. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone that was cut from a mountain and by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation sure. And the king raises Daniel up into the highest post of the land. I wish I had a picture of Babylon, but they don't let many people in. Iraq isn't friendly to picture taking. So what we have is Egypt, which doesn't show up on this book. But it is another kingdom where kings like to make much of themselves that toppled. And it's a picture of the hope. Truly your God, verse 47, this is the king's response. Truly your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the revealer of mysteries. Every one of these little stories is designed to move us somewhere. We are supposed to be drawn in in the same way that the king is drawn in. So that when we read this story, our hope is elevated. Our vision is made more clear. No longer do giants stand in our way. Rather, the one who made the giants is in our view. And we are trusting in Him to fight all of our battles. That's what this book is designed to do. To heighten hope, kingdom hope, ultimately through what God would do in the person and work of Jesus. Chapter 2. A fiery furnace. So... Nebuchadnezzar gets into this whole statue dream thing. You are the head of gold. But he doesn't really like that, so he decides to make the entire statue of gold. He actually makes on earth a picture of what he dreamt, and then he calls all the peoples of the world to bow down to this statue of gold. Well, he kind of forgot some of his dream, right? What the ultimate end would be, and he calls these three guys, he calls Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to bow down. He wants all the peoples, nations, and languages to worship his image. And here's what we get from the three wise guys, all from the land of Judah. This is kingdom hope. Nebuchadnezzar says, who is the God who will deliver out of my hands? He doesn't get his dream. He made a testimony with his lips, but he didn't realize the significance that he was part of that statue that would be toppled. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego testify this way. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, that is, that you will throw us into the blazing furnace, 
If this be so, and you toss us in there, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of it, out of your hand. But if not, we will still not bow down. Such deep-seated confidence in a God. Such an unswerving commitment. I just hear like the words of Job, that the message of the book of Job Satan says, does Job fear you for nothing? He fears you because his life is good. But send him in a journey into the wilderness. Take him down into the valley of the shadow of death and he will stop trusting. And the book is supposed to help us feel that we fear God simply because of who He is and not because of what He gives or takes away. Come what may, we will not bow down. God in His kindness, 25 years later, as a global partner, raised up your son. Praise God. Praise God. Jesus said, no one has seen the Father. Often in the Old Testament, we see glimpses of Yahweh. He takes on a human form. Often he's called the messenger of Yahweh, but when he speaks, he speaks with the very voice of God. It doesn't say, the Lord says, he just says, Yahweh says. And then we hear this voice speaking. When Nebuchadnezzar, however it is, the fire is so hot that even the guards who put the guys in end up dying from the heat. The three men go in, and Nebuchadnezzar, however it is, he's able to actually look into the furnace, and there's four men there. And it suggests to me that that fourth man is the same blazing messenger of Yahweh that Moses saw on Mount Sinai in the burning bush and spoke for Yahweh. He's the same blazing messenger of Yahweh that I had a second in my mind. We see him show up many times, but as a blazing, fiery messenger. Oh, Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord, that is the sovereign, seated on his throne. And the train of his robe filled the palace. 
He's actually visually seeing the Lord over all things, seated on His throne. He's not just getting um, a picture of the earthly temple. He's seeing the real deal. And there's actually a, a, a train that is filling the entire temple. Temple and palace, same words in Hebrew. The temple of God is the palace of God where He sits on His throne. And Isaiah is seeing this one seated on his throne. And John chapter 12 says, Isaiah saw Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar, I think, saw Jesus. And what is his response when he pulls these guys out? Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants just like He will do from each of us in our suffering. It may happen in the now, or it may happen through death. But it will happen. The God who has sent His angel, His messenger, and delivered His servants who trusted in Him and set aside the King's command. Blessed be this God These men who yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make, any, I make a decree. Any people, nation, language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. He's getting closer. He hasn't declared him to be the only god overall, but Nebuchadnezzar is on the move. Don't you dare speak against this God. In his worldview, there's still many other gods. But this one, he's done something I've never seen. Don't you dare talk against him. Yahweh is being exalted higher and higher in the eyes of the ungodly. Chapter 4. He, Nebuchadnezzar gets a second dream and pride begins to rise in his soul. Pride that ultimately will result in his, for a season, being kicked out of his kingdom and then coming back to his kingdom after he's humbled himself before the Lord. I'm just going to focus there. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven And my reason returned to me. He was beastly. Oh, that's something I should note. He became like a beast. In this book, we see many beasts. And they're the kings of the earth who think they're great. But they are nothing more than beasts. In contrast to that, God's going to portray real humans. One like a son of man who will be over all of his people. It's... it's, Uh, Human kingdoms are beastly, and the image is that you want to stop being beasts and start living as the image of God, as humans are supposed to. To be rebellious against Him is to be not imaging Him, but beastly, like all the rest of the creation. And Nebuchadnezzar is being portrayed as a beast, and then we're going to see dreams and visions of beasts, and they're the kingdoms and they're kings. But when God talks about His kingdom, it's portrayed as a man 
overseeing all things. This, and so the image is, what does it mean to be truly human? It means to be a displayer of God and have God on the, on the throne of your life. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes back to reason, he leaves beasthood and begins to turn in his own heart to the Lord. He lifted up his eyes, his reason returned. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. You see how he's moved? I praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all His works are right, His ways are just, and those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. This is a book that says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And if you find yourself in brokenness, the answer is not doubt God. Doubt His faithfulness. Doubt His bigness. Don't go there. Instead, in the midst of your humility and brokenness, let your eyes rise. Take heart in the God who is faithful and present. The God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This, brother... Probably. So the question is, do the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as Babylonian names mean anything? And I said probably, and the proposal, and makes good sense to me, but I haven't looked at it myself, is that they're connected to false gods in Babylon. And Okay. Yes. Now, mentioned here was Pastor John's it may have been, it was at least one of his last Advent poems of the four weeks of Advent and he would choose various characters and he chose Nebuchadnezzar one year and just walked through the stories of Daniel. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful book to pick because it's all about the coming king and his kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar's growing awareness from start to finish through these four poems his growing awareness and servitude to the God who's like a stone whose kingdom will grow to that God and the stone that will ultimately in the book be identified as the Son of Man and the anointed Messiah. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's growing awareness in time and submission, humility before this great God and his king. I encourage you guys to watch those. Nebuchadnezzar has a boy who becomes king. And we read his story in chapter 5. Belshazzar doesn't learn from his father. He has his own vision, this giant finger writing on a wall. 
and he gets his own message. Look with me in chapter 5, verse 18. Daniel comes to Belshazzar and says, Haven't you learned anything from your father? O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness, he gave him all peoples, nations, and languages. They trembled and feared before him. Verse 20, But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. At the end of verse 21, It was taken from him until he knew that the Most High God rules the, king of, rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Verse 23, you, Belshazzar, verse 22, sorry, you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And then he unpacks and says, the vision that you've seen is about the destruction of your kingdom and that God will raise up other kingdoms in your stead. Chapter 6. Daniel and the lion's den. So, gossip gets out on behalf of the nobility of Judah who've been raised up into prominence in Babylon. The word gets out that Daniel and his friends are praying to the Lord. And They didn't, like, they didn't like Daniel at all, but they could find no ground for complaint, it says in verse 4, or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was in him. And then they thought, we can catch him. We can get him in the act. And so they set up this whole ruse, make the king of Babylon make a decree Let's see, the decree comes in verse 7. All the presidents of the kingdom and prefects and the satraps, the counselors, all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So the law comes down from the top. You can't pray to any one other than the king for 30 days. And Daniel can't hack that one, and so off to the den of lions he goes. Babylon's symbol was the lion. The lion was their image of power. And now Yahweh is going to cut to the heart of the Babylonian perception of reality and say that he is greater than even the gods of Babylon. So the decree is made So Daniel gets preserved again he So the lions are stopped Daniel is safe and then we read in verse 26 I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel for he is the living God 
Enduring forever, His kingdom shall never be stopped, and the dominion shall be, His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers, He rescues, He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let me see. Here we go. A head of gold, a chest of arm, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of clay and iron mixed, a mountain. You, O king, are the head of gold, but God's kingdom is greater. God's kingdom will last. All the kingdoms of men won't. For a people that are feeling distant from God, this is a message of hope. Where we go next week is into not just an image of a statue that seems so normal and looks like a man. Next week we go into dragons and beasts with multiple horns. But we want to keep this in our mind. That he starts with something in our world, not in another world, and it's connected to space and time so that it's an earthly king and an earthly kingdom and a kingdom that will be established on earth over all the kingdoms of men. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion will never end. And we're going to use this as a lens to help us understand the vision in chapter 7 and the vision in chapter 8 as it's unpacked in the rest of the book and then understand chapter 9 if God will grant us 70 weeks of years. Um, Next week, there is... uh, We will boldly go where many people don't want to tread. But we will be controlled by what the text has to say. What is intriguing about Daniel that is often not the case in Revelation, though it is there, is that in Daniel, it not only gives the vision, but it includes the interpretation. And Daniel is often left scratching his head saying, what am I supposed to get from this? And then it gives us the interpretation. Revelation expects us to read its own visions in light of books like Daniel that give interpretation. So next week we will enter in there but I just want to encourage you. Let your hearts be encouraged. So six stories that front this book, taking us back into exile and saying God was on the move. The real lion, Aslan, was on the move. And it's supposed to encourage hearts. And just as it encouraged them back then, it can encourage us who even now already have a king, but not yet seeing His kingdom established on earth as it is in heaven in every way. Seek His kingdom. Father, I thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You that You've given us a great sermon and worship service and now medicine this Sunday school. I pray that hearts would be encouraged. The fact that You are King May we see our own hearts progressing if we've been struggling to 
remember that you're on the throne and that you're for us. May we find our hearts on the move like Nebuchadnezzar's was to greater awakenings all the way to the point of humility and submission. We want to declare you are God over all. Thank you that you not only care for the sparrow, you care for us all the more. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His Glory in Christ.